I'm curious about what kind of music you listened to when you were growing up. I actually listened to a lot of country music growing up, uh, coming from the Pennsylvania, West Virginia area. Of course, that was very popular. Uh, so I listened to a lot of that. But then auspiciously, my one of my aunts back when I was maybe five years old bought me a Walkman and had uh, my very first tape of all things was a Mozart tape, <laughs> but just a bunch of random Mozart pieces on it. And I must have worn that one out. And so between the two, um, that's basically what I listened to growing up. <laughs> wow. That's really cool. So yeah, it was, uh, it, it's of course, very, two very different things. And my parents were always a little unsure about the classical, classical side. They had no no idea. They were, I think that to a certain extent, they were like, oh my gosh, what have we done? Because then when I, when I got into high school and could start to buy things for myself, I started buying a lot of soundtracks, more classical CDs, you know, just kind of out of interest. And like, oh, this is, oh, this is opera. Oh, this is, this is Haydn, you know? And so it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. What was it called? Oh, soundtrack music. Yeah. That is my favorite kind of music to work to. Because mm -hmm. there's no lyrics, so I can't get distracted. <laughs> <laughs> this is Musicians Can Thrive, a podcast for anyone seeking to make money in the music industry. Musicians, audio engineers, managers, producers, venue owners, booking agents, everyone across all niches. Welcome. I'm Gabrielle Pittman, and I love music. Listening to it, writing it, producing it, living, breathing, and all that jazz. In the music world and pop culture, it's easy to find stories about the dream of becoming a star, often in either the rock or pop music scenes. What doesn't get talked about as much is the classical music world, how musicians find themselves drawn to that path rather than more popular kinds of music, how musicians can be creative about making money and shaping a new kind of career in the classical music world. Robert Heath is a clarinetist who first experienced the connective power of music through his years in bands with the West Virginia National Guard and the U.S. Navy. Witnessing how music can bridge cultural divides and bring people together was a powerful catalyst for Robert. Now he puts together small ensembles so classical musicians can make money performing in a way that's more agile and cost-effective. He also teaches other classical musicians how they can do this and pairs an entrepreneurial mindset of being willing to embrace failure with a musician's creativity. Has your music taste changed at all as you've gotten older? Is it kind of what it always was? Uh, it's basically stayed the same. I Although I've actually still listen mostly to, to classical music, but I kind of force myself. I listen to a, a lot of my friends are jazz musicians or to a certain extent, pop or rock musicians, uh, depending on, on which group I've been with. And so they've, whatever they recommend or whatever they're listening to, I try to go, oh, okay, I'll listen to that. Uh, so I've listened to like Daft Punk and whatever, whatever other uh, albums du jour there might be. And because I really don't know that much about popular music, aside from that, some of it I like and some of it I don't. And so it's usually, it's kind of like a nice bottle of wine or something. It'll be one of my friends will be like, oh, you should listen to this. And it's like, who's this person? Oh, Miley Cyrus. Okay. I guess I should listen to her or Taylor Swift or whatever. You know, and so it's like, okay, I'll listen to them. And then it's like, oh yeah, this is pretty cool. I see why a lot of people really like this. <laughs> Man, I can't even imagine what it would be like to have that as sort of a new thing to discover because so much of my music was just um I mean it's not always been the mainstream pop but a kind of pop I've always that's what I was listening to and I've heard classical pieces here and there you know there are some things that I really love but as far as the bulk of my listening it's a foreign world to me just like popular music is a foreign world to you <laughs> that's pretty cool Maybe you can recommend me a, a piece later. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I'll send you something for everybody. <laughs> cool. Uh, so what made you want to be a musician? What got you into oh, it? Oh, that's a that's a really great question. Because originally, I actually didn't want to be a musician. Going up through high school, all through 
back when I was in fifth grade, I had to memorize the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. And so from then on, I wanted to be a lawyer. I was dead set I was going to be a lawyer. And then all the while I was involved with band and played clarinet, got to college, took some, started taking lessons and just kind of ended up sliding into a music major. I started off with a political science major with the intent to go to law school. And then after that, I just continued to take more and more music classes during it. And I was a minor. And then I actually didn't declare my music major until my very last, right before I graduated. And the uh, the school was like, oh, we want to give you money, <laughs> basically this senior award, but you're not actually declared as a major. <laughs> so we can't give you anything. So fill out this paperwork and so we can actually declare it because I'd actually finished all of the requirements for both degrees. Um, and, and so then that's where from there, the original intent was still to go to law school. And then of course I had lots of friends who were, were music majors. And my background is I joined the, the 249th army band when I was a sophomore in college. And so that was pretty, pretty, pretty big thing for me. Joining the military was a big deal, but also playing music semi-professionally. And so we go around and do ceremonies and that sort of a thing. But at the same time, obviously you have to have to be a certain level and their expectations. And so it just kind of prompted me to practice all the more. And then I had one of my friends in that unit who went, who was trying to figure out whether he wanted to go active duty or not. And the entire time I was like, oh yeah, you should do it. It would be fun. You could do, you know, you get to travel around and all that stuff. And then as I was telling him this, I actually inadvertently convinced myself. <laughs> and so, uh, long story short, then we both ended up going active duty. And then from there, ended up making the jump for some circumstances at the time over to the Navy, where then I spent four years doing that. And then from there, came back and had to make the decision whether I wanted to continue. I got out of the Navy, whether I wanted to continue in music or go be something else. And then it seems like every time I've tried to go do something else, I kind of, I get pulled back into doing music. At the end of the day, I end up really loving it. And so now that's where I really didn't originally plan to be a musician. It's just kind of how I've ended up over time. That's great to hear. I've come across a few musicians who kind of found their way into it by accident. And it's, it's so refreshing to hear that because in in my experience, it just came out of nowhere as a kid and it mm. completely hijacked my previous childhood dream and <laughs> set me on this course that uh-huh. I had no control over. But it, it seems like if music is something that whatever it is out there that you want to call it, let's just say the universe, uh-huh. if you're meant to be doing music in one form or another, inevitably you find your way into it. Oh, sure. It's it's almost impossible to escape. <laughs> <laughs> that's something I can resonate with. Oh, yeah. And that's where, you know, and you have a lot of people where they, I think they go into it too. And they, they think, especially if you're just, if you grow up with that idea of, oh, I'm going to be a musician. So you go to music school and then you go to, you go try to get into an orchestra or start your own band or whatever. And then they run into problems and then it's like, oh, shoot, I guess I can't be a musician. And then they just kind of give up. And I, to a certain extent, anyway, I think there are lots of examples of that. And mm-hmm. I think they get burned out, all of those things. And I think one of the benefits of not having gone through that is that I never had that, mm, not necessarily just never really had that, that dream to hold myself to. So each time it was just like, OK, what do I do? I, I guess I'll. I'll go active duty. And there was no like, oh, well, I should be this good of a player. I should be whatever. It just, I could just kind of accept me for who I was, you know, and Mm -hmm. and I was never going to be uh, the top clarinetist in the world. So I didn't have to aspire to that. I could just be good at what I personally was doing in my personal projects. So recitals and all of that, typically most of the the stuff I've done outside of work anyway, has all just been out of my own personal interest rather than somebody forcing me to, or, you know, anything like that. And so I think that kind of has helped keep me more positive, at least during most of my musical journey that I think a lot of people who, who end up getting burned out and all of that. And so I've been very fortunate in that aspect. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to hear you say that because I, um, 
Well, I've just started wondering, basically, as I've been doing these interviews, you know, there are some musicians who they grow up and it's like, okay, I need to be a professional. And sometimes the dream or part of the dream is I want to be a world famous musician, Mm -hmm. you know, like kind of that old rock star dream where you tour the world and you got screaming fans at your feet. It it does make me wonder, though, because there are so many kinds of shoulds around Mm. what it means to be a musician. And so hearing your journey of how there wasn't that pressure of, oh, I need to be this kind of musician or I need to be a musician, period. It gave you the freedom to really explore it and find your way into your spot without there being all this extra pressure on it, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I'm just, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. It's what a great way to get into it. Well, you know, and it's funny too, because so much of it has, because I originally wanted it, I had the political science major. So I studied power relationships, basically. I was a debater. Everything was geared towards law school. And then when I got out of the Navy, I went to get a master's in international a political economy from the University of California, San Diego. My undergrad was from Marshall University. And with the original idea, like, oh, I'll go do something more businessy. And then when I was there, I met David Dong, where then we, he started a, an orchestra there that exclusively performs video game, anime, and movie music. And then as we met and started talking, I thought, oh, wow, this is really cool. There are, there were a lot of students who showed up to the the concerts and to play in the orchestra itself. There were sometimes over 70, 80 people in the ensemble. And so it's obviously people really like it. And so having the different background too, then when I coming into music from those perspectives, then it's like, oh, you can mix some of this stuff that's non-musical with it. And Mm. I think that ends up providing a valuable perspective where so many people they they go through school, they finish, and they go, okay, now I got I have to get a job as a musician. And a lot of times they just they apply for orchestras, they they audition, they they do whatever, and then they just they don't get a job after say five, 10, 15, 20, 100 auditions or whatever, and then they don't know what else to do. When I think of one of the things that we absolutely need in the modern music world is people who can go out and do new and interesting things that are not in the traditional model. So even if you're a classical instrumentalist doing videos on YouTube that are not just mere performances, but, you know, I think there's plenty of room for people who want to be like, say, Elton John, but in the classical world, Uh, you know, there are people who are doing interesting things visually, integrating dance, all of those things, people who want to start their own ensembles. And I think this is such a vital part of the field Because this is what creates more jobs, because at the end of the day, there just aren't enough jobs for all the musicians who are out there. But if we had more and more musicians creating their own ensembles, going after the the smallest viable audience, you know, as Seth, of course, talks about, um, then we we create more positions in the field and then we can work towards getting away from having all these jaded musicians who just spent all this time on school and are really good, but then they end up having to get some sort of, of job outside of music because they don't know what else to do. And so for me personally, I would love to see more musicians trying to bring in different perspectives uh, into their, their musical world and doing something new and appealing to new people and, and, and doing something ultimately that's really valuable for the world. I sure would love to see that. what's one of your favorite examples of someone who's done that that's a great question so i think some of the uh, i spent a great deal of time out in in los angeles right now and there are some great ensembles out there there's the los angeles master chorale they're programming they just did a their last concert of the season was it involved uh, movie music and uh, famous opera choruses. And they even did some really recent movies too. Like I want to say there were, there was maybe a horror movie in there, some, some music that I was actually surprised by, but I thought, Oh wow, this is really cool. They're combining both classical and modern with all the, the, the movie music. So people can come for that and then they can stay and go, Oh, maybe I like Puccini. Maybe I like Verdi. When a lot of this music of course is, is, comes out of that tradition. The Los Angeles, the LA Phil is also doing some really great programming. They did a, they started their hundredth season this year and they just did 
what was it? They started their season with a block party, <laughs> basically, to kind of get the community out and involved. And, and, and I feel like the L.A. Phil is, is really good at making it the orchestra feel like it's L.A.'s orchestra. You know, it's not just this thing out there, but it's something that people who live in Los Angeles kind of have a part of and a piece of. And then there are other people who are doing some some very different things. There's a conductor in New York. His name escapes me at the moment, but he's he founded the the music paradigm, which basically uses Wall Street. Big Wall Street firms will hire him in an orchestra and these managers will sit in the orchestra and they he then uses conducting an orchestra to talk about business management techniques. So he will overlead the ensemble and then like say the flutist there's this one video of the of a flutist playing a solo and he's he's over conducting being really micromanaging with her and then he hands he does that and then he cuts the orchestra and then he hands her the microphone and he asks her well how does that make you feel you know what would you want more from me and and she gives this really great answer about where it's like you're so you're so much in my way that I'm getting in my own way and I can't do anything. <laughs> so, and then of course he translates that specifically to the business world. And so I think there are all sorts of lessons like that for the business world, uh, communication in general, obviously musicians are constantly talking to each other, even without actually talking, you know, jazz musicians in particular, they're improvising, they're, they're playing off of each other. At the same time, orchestras have had to deal with all sorts of diversity issues. There's an orchestra that has both Palestinian and Israeli musicians in it. And they're using it as a way to show, you know, that, that people from very different backgrounds and sometimes antagonistic backgrounds can actually work together to create something very beautiful. And so that's a great metaphor for what we can do in life. And so there are all these different examples, I think, of, of, of different people doing doing really great things with music that isn't something that you would first go, oh, it's it's not, these aren't just orchestras in the traditional sense. They're they're teaching lessons. They're they're teaching more than just music. And I think that there's so much there that is untapped and unexplored. And I really think that's kind of where the, the frontier is for the for the music field is taking taking these lessons that we as musicians have always kind of known and getting out of our heads and just going, oh yeah, this would be helpful for people in other fields for collaboration and, and whatever else they might need to do. And so I think musicians can, can, can look to them as models. That's beautiful. I am so thrilled to know that there's musicians out there doing things in such, I'm not sure if creative is the right word for it, but it's really <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what it's like it a is. It's new creativity. Yeah. Yeah. It's finding ways to, you know, I've, come across some musicians who it feels like they're so wrapped up in protecting the art that they mm -hmm. don't take the time to kind of step back and open their eyes and think, okay, what else is like art or what is mm -hmm. art in a different way? And how can I use that to either support my own art or work <laughs> alongside with my art? Yeah. And I think that's, that's a lesson we all have to learn, you know, where you have kind of the artistic ideal, whatever ones might be, one's own artistic ideal might be. And then you have the practicality of supporting yourself. And I think that's where so many musicians don't look at, um, say the military, like the, I'm in the national guard and, and it's been really great for me, the benefits I've been able to get out of it. And it's, it's one of those things where when you talk about it, it's kind of, you kind of sound like a, a recruiter, you know, but at the same time, when I was in the Navy, I got to travel to over 13 or 14 countries and play in huge cities like Hong Kong, Sydney, and then play in very tiny towns and like Rote, Indonesia. And, and all of those are, are very meaningful experiences that also help to not just pay the bills, but but build me up as a musician, give me the resources to be able to work on uh, recitals outside of work, to be able to do uh, more things. You know, there's healthcare benefits, all of that. And so that's where there are other options out there besides just the, the kind of starving artist model. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that that is kind of the ideal where it's like, oh, I'm a sellout. You know, if I, if I joined the military, or if I joined some sort of corporate thing, you know, that will, 
will do something that will pay the bills. Regardless of what part of the music world you find yourself in, having the courage and the creativity to find something outside of the traditional model is a powerful shift in how you can approach supporting yourself as a musician. If you have to piece together your living from several different sources of revenue, so be it. There's no shame in that. After all, millionaires around the world, on average, have seven streams of income, not just one. So with that in mind, what's something interesting that you've been wanting to try with your music work? And actually, that reminds me, have you ever heard of industrial musicals? No. So there's a there's a documentary on Netflix right now. I think it's Netflix that one of the writers for the for who was it? David Letterman. He started finding these these albums of of musicals that were about specific products. And so companies back in the in the heyday of this would hire sometimes people who who either became or were big names in the Broadway industry to write musicals, full-blown musicals back in, it was like 1970. I think they spent, they were spending $3 million on these, <laughs> you know, $1970, wow. I think. So mm-hmm. they were spending a ton of money on this and with all these, these really talented people and they were doing it about bathroom products or about salespeople or, and I feel like this is just one of those things that especially we as musicians, I had never even heard of this (laughs) until this past weekend. And it was just one of those things that kind of blew my mind where it was like, oh, so you can use this to, and they interviewed, of course, lots of the, 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 the Broadway actors and actresses and directors and composers. And you see that there was a whole livelihood there. And so they could some of them were able to to refine their craft by doing that and get paid nicely for it. And they were able to support themselves. And so I think that's another great example of, of something that completely blows my mind, <laughs> you know, but talking to companies and finding out. So say you want the company to be your audience, then going to them and finding out what their needs are, what are they looking for? And and even for a lot of them, it was even just to to kind of do like a pep concert for their or a pep show for their their sales force so that they could feel really special, (laughs) you know, because then they would go out and they would be more productive as salesmen. And so even functioning like that, there's so much that one could do when you count companies themselves as as an audience. And so so yeah, if you haven't checked out that if you haven't heard of that that documentary, I'll have to look it up and I'll send you the the name of it, but it's really neat to see. (laughs) That's amazing. The more I learn about these creative ways that musicians find a source of income, the more it just makes me excited about how we can change the blueprint of what it means to be a professional musician. Mm. The kind of more popular music or rock music musicians, a lot of them, their dream is, okay, I want to tour the world. I want to be famous. I want everyone to know my name. At this point now, there's like millions of social media followers included in that definition. Mm -hmm. And it's so... I I, I guess just the word for it is unrealistic because, Mm -hmm. yes, there is a very small percentage of musicians who do live that life. And I guess for a classical musician, it might be being... Isn't first chair like a big honor in an ensemble? Oh, sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so being some sort of hot shot in the classical music world, whether you're first chair or you're just really famous as a soloist or something like that, it's so, I guess, just filled with an ego of sorts of, Mm -hmm. this is the only way for me to be, quote, successful as a musician. And there's this kind of, shame associated with being a quote sellout if you find a more sustainable way to make money Mm -hmm. yeah i think you're exactly right when it comes to when you mentioned specifically ego because we to a certain extent build ourselves up as this thing you know and then doing something else or doing something it's it's weird because it's almost like being creative is 
frowned upon <laughs> in its own way for 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 a field that is fundamentally or at least should be creative <laughs> you know we we tend to 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 go oh no you need to be in these very defined roles you know and a lot of times they're self-imposed and part of it is because like oh i have this dream of being this this huge person when really you know it's kind of like what seth and and, and others have talked about with the you know with the minimum viable audience and the if you can if you have a thousand true followers, you know, if you can find those people and you can be perfectly happy, <laughs> you know, just having such a small audience where you can actually be artistically fulfilled and you can do all of this. If you spend the time finding that audience and figuring out what it is that you yourself personally have to offer. And I think we don't do enough of that, that searching for it. We just kind of come with these prepackaged ideas and we don't challenge them enough. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. I've never heard it put into words in that way, but I think being creative about how you go about <laughs> building a music career is the best way to put it. <laughs> Certainly. I saw on your website that you described yourself both as a musician and an entrepreneur. And one of the things that prompted me to start this podcast is I've had a suspicion develop over the past five years or so that the way for musicians to build a future for themselves that breaks free of this starving artist stereotype or the rock star at the other end of that spectrum <laughs> stereotype. I'm wondering what it feels like for you to be describing yourself as an entrepreneur and a musician. Do you think that, well, I guess just the way to put it is how do musicians find ways to carry themselves and act more like entrepreneurs? Well, I think a lot of books that I've read with entrepreneurship classes I've taken, there's such an emphasis on failure to a certain extent where it's like, well, you know, if you're a manager in a company, you have to allow your people to fail, you know, within reason, of course. But then there's Google has all of these projects that never came to anything where they just tried it to see what happened. And I think that's something that the entrepreneur mindset fundamentally has uh, is that it's a, you go out, you, you figure it out. It's a, nobody's going to give you something because you're kind of, it's not that you're on your own. You can find support structures, but if you're an entrepreneur creating something new in the community, whether it's maybe it's the first bakery or you're doing a bakery that's different from all the other ones, like how are you different? There's this, this idea that you have to kind of, develop that and you have to go after it even though you might fail you have to overcome that sense of failure and i feel like especially in the classical world we're taught that failure is bad you know you played a wrong note you know you had a memory slip you had anything like that and it's true even in the in the rock world i think you know where it's like oh that's not how the song goes it doesn't sound right you know, and so we just end up getting all of this reinforced where it's like, do it right. <laughs> Don't, you know, it, it, instead of I, I read this book and I really wish I could find it. I, I just wrote about it on the the on my blog. Um, but I think it was Ben Horowitz and the hard thing about hard things where he talks about boxing. And he was either taking boxing lessons or something, something to that effect. Uh, he just was interested in it. And he was in there doing some boxing and his teacher was like, you're, you're avoiding, you're trying not to get hit. <laughs> and the thing with boxing is that you have to learn to love to get hit. And I feel like entrepreneurship is kind of like that. It's like you get, you get slammed, you know, you didn't realize, oh, ticketing systems. I didn't even think about that. You know, every time there's a click on uh, to, to buy a ticket, you know, that's, there's a number. I don't know what it is, but it decreases your conversion rate, you know, in the, is what they would say in the business world. Something that you might not have known. And so then your first concert doesn't, you don't sell anywhere nearly as much as you did. You know, presuming you're still alive and it's not catastrophic, you know, you can, you pick yourself back up and you go, okay, 
ticketing. <laughs> now I need to figure out this ticketing system or whatever else it might be. Because I think especially with in the music field, we spend so much time worrying about the musical details. Do I have a great sounding orchestra? Do I have a great sounding band? Do I myself sound great? Am I a good enough conductor that then when it comes time to actually put something together, we don't think about those those business sides. And we we always talk about taking artistic risks, of course. Oh, you know, be louder here, you know, go as loud as you can or be as soft as you possibly can to really draw the audience in. But we don't talk about taking entrepreneurial risks in the music field, I don't think anyway. And that's really where where the growth is for both the field and for the individuals. And so I think if we could get out of that that kind of do it right mindset and instead just think about exploring things and and kind of leaning into the, those hard things and the scary things talking to venues you know how do i how do i book my band somewhere how do i deal with music contractors if you want to put an orchestra together you know there are there are so many things out there where instead of just going oh i don't know anything about that so therefore i'm not going to touch it instead we need to kind of teach ourselves the mindset of going going straight at it and be like, okay, if I fail, then we'll just get up and try again, <laughs> you know, until we get something that that keeps. And I think ultimately that's where the fulfilling musical career can be, is if you keep trying that, keep going after new audiences. Maybe the audience you thought you were going to have isn't really the audience that you isn't the audience that you actually have. You know, I think one of the one of the lessons I've learned from a recent concert, I thought college students were going to really want to come to it. But at the end of the day, they don't have that much disposable cash. So really, I think the the bigger audience was young professionals, <laughs> you know, who do who are still in a similar age category and similar time of the of the life cycle and have similar tastes, but they have jobs <laughs> and full time yeah. jobs, you know, so there are those sorts of minor changes where you go into things and even if something's a complete disaster, it might be a complete disaster because of a small thing. And then if you fix that small thing, then you can build on that. And at the same time, too, I feel like then so we fail, we try something and then it's like, oh, it doesn't it doesn't go that well. And so then we just stop, say we leave the music field and then we have we lose all of that experience. And that's one of the things that that that. I've been trying to do with my, with at least a little bit with my website and, and, and when I talk to people and, and try to encourage them to go after this is you, you just have to keep going. <laughs> um, because I certainly, what was it about two years ago, I was uh, working with David to do a, a, a concert and we were, it was a, an orchestra that was just going to play video game, anime, movie music. And Basically, it didn't. We ended up having to cancel it a month before the concert due to venue issues. We the venue ended up costing over possibly upwards of seventy to eighty grand instead of the twenty grand that we had initially thought it would be. And after that, of course, I went through a an extended period of soul searching where I was like, "Oh, geez, I think I should just get out of music again." Uh, and then at the same time, I thought. You know, after doing all of this, you gain these experiences that you cannot get unless you've done it. And so then it was actually in the immediate aftermath of that. I did a handful of YouTube videos that are just they're really basic and it's just kind of about budgeting and 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 that's sort where of, it should you be for profit or nonprofit. Just some some very tiny issues like that. But I wanted to kind of preserve some of those lessons while I could remember them and put them out into the ether. And so a lot of the things on my blog kind of comes from that. And where I certainly don't have the answers and I don't know what the best thing is and what all, what the best business model is. But I think there are certain lessons that we can pass on where we can learn from other people's failures. And in the music field, if we if these people who are out there doing these failures never talk about it and never, never put it out there in the ether for somebody else, you know, then they can't learn from it. And then they'll end up making the same mistakes. Whereas if you talk about ticketing systems or whatever, you know, then you can venue, venue negotiations, you know, how do you do that? Then 
the next generation or, you know, obviously for yourself, you learn those, but then for other people, they can go, okay, so ticketing systems, I'm just going to do this. And because this seemed like this might've worked in this case instead, you know, and in, in business school, they do case studies all the time. You know, it'll be, they won't usually won't say the company, but you can tell very specifically, you know, what the company was where it's like, uh, you know, the iPhone is about to release and this thing is wrong with it. You know, what do you do? Uh, sort of a thing, but we don't do that in the music field. We don't look at, uh, instances in orchestra management, you know, where like, oh, this was a negotiation with the musicians. What should the management have done? What should have the, what should the musicians themselves have done? And I'm sure they cover that in, in arts administration and those sorts of things. But then you have people who are administrators, probably with some, some background in music or an extended background in music, who end up becoming kind of like a separate class. You know, where I, I feel like most of the really great ideas comes from people on the front lines of music who then have an idea to start their own ensemble or to start their own band or whatever. And they go, OK, now how do I do this? And if we can send those lessons out there for them so that way, because they're doing artistically interesting things, then we can grow the field up all the more. That's really exciting. I am. I'm glad that you pointed out that musicians have a hard time with failure because that's not something I've picked up on before. But as you say it, it really strikes me as a big part of why musicians are so, well, I don't want to lump everyone in the same category. There, there are some musicians out there who, unless it is directly related to their music, unless it is making their music better or sharing their music in some direct to consumer way, whether it's a show or a recording or a video, I think there's this resistance to being willing to even learn about those things that you're talking about that are so necessary, especially if you want to have an income as a musician. So I'm glad that you brought that up. I'm excited to think about it more. We've made it about halfway through the show and we're going to have a quick pause. Ads are irritating distractions, so they'll never be a part of the Musicians Can Thrive podcast. There are three things you can do that would be super helpful though. Whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, Subscribe. Share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Text it to them, email it, or post it on social media. Lastly, if you're feeling extra generous, leave a quick review on your favorite podcast platform. I appreciate your support. Back to the show. It's funny, of course, too, that you mentioned technology, where then it's like, think about 3D technology, 3D projection technology, you know, like Google Glass is really cheap. You know, they're messing around with 3D cameras. And so that's, there are all sorts of things there that we as musicians can mess around with on the visual side that, to my knowledge, nobody's touched yet. You know, like imagine being able to sit in a recital in 3D, <laughs> basically, you know, and having it and watching it that way, not just with good sound, but also where it's like, say, you can walk around the stage even, you know, or, you know, I'm sure other people can come up with way better ideas than I can. But, you know, it's just that in and of itself is just so completely untapped that it's it's a whole new world out there that that we can incorporate into the music field and make it all the more relevant now. Yeah, I think definitely the future of musicians supporting themselves in a way that's sustainable and repeatable over a long period of time is finding that intersection between music and other things. I would love to hear more about the work that you're doing to help facilitate smaller ensembles in a way that's 
how did you put it, more versatile and it helps them get a more sustainable path to income in their classical music. So really what I... I've been doing lately is just doing a bit on my website. I've I've also founded a, both a nonprofit and for-profit ensembles. Resonance Horizon is the I co-founded with David Dong, which is the orchestra that just does video game, anime, and movie music. We're still working on doing our first concert and kind of incorporating the lessons from the that that previous one and doing something better the next time. And then I've also started a nonprofit that brings musicians from Japan, China, Korea in the U.S. to places like my native West Virginia to kind of try to bring back some of those experiences I had when I was in the Navy, mm-hmm. you know, working with a lot of really great people into places where most West Virginians will probably never meet an actual Japanese person, let alone somebody from California. <laughs> you know, And so so part of it is is just to introduce people to people they would otherwise never meet. And with that, there's a, an ensemble that I've commissioned music for from, from a variety of composers from those countries. And I'm still working on figuring out a model for that. And that's where I guess, realistically for me, I'm still figuring it out too. I certainly don't have anything. I haven't found the, the, the magic word yet, but I think part of it is just getting up and trying again, figuring out the skills that you're lacking and, and trying again and being willing to try again. And so that's where, for me lately, it's been, I did a, a, a few podcast episodes. I haven't done one recently, but I did a few of those and I'm working on getting a kind of like a summer season going. I'm lining up guests now to, to talk more about those things and to try to put in, I guess really the primary thing right now is my, my blog, where it's just putting stuff out there, just different ideas and things that, people can either take or leave, you know, but something, if they can just go, Oh, huh. That's, I can use that, you know, trying to put those for, for me, I guess, then practically speaking, what it is, it's just putting my own personal experiences out into the ether so that, that other people can learn from, from, from my failures so far, you know, and then we can all work together and help each other to, to figure out something that is, that is, good and better because certainly there are far far smarter people out there and it's something that's that really i think takes the entire field to work on figuring out and it takes those those random crazy ideas where just like what if we did this and then trying to create something to encourage people to just go ahead and do that because I think that's really the biggest thing is so many people will go, oh, I could never start my own ensemble. Oh, I could never, I could never really have my own YouTube channel. And instead being like, well, why not go do that? <laughs> and so even in my personal conversations with people, I just try to I tell them, you know, about some of these ideas and just to think bigger and to, to kind of get out of the, the traditional shell that, that we kind of inherit. And so I've been doing that and that's where I guess, yeah, for me, it's just been kind of refining all the lessons that I've been doing and continuing to work. I've got one thing I'm doing right now. I'm working on bringing uh, the Japanese saxophonist Misato Hanawa over for a few recitals in West Virginia and in West Virginia and Ohio and possibly Pennsylvania. And with the goal with this is this is a much smaller project than what I've done in the past. And because it's just, it's a saxophonist and a pianist and then a couple of venues and then finding the audience for it. And what it does is it kind of minimizes the the number of variables and it's allowing me to experiment with building certain relationships, you know, with either different Japanese communities, Japanese organizations in the U.S. that has been really enlightening where, let's say you're trying to conduct, say, a full orchestra or something, then you're dealing with learning all of that music and everything. And so it can be a lot musically there. But with this, this has been much more focused on the on the administrative side, figuring out uh, some of those ins and outs, figuring out audience you know, because I think that's that audience search is 
is the biggest thing and finding people who already want to go to your recital as once you tell them and they go, Oh yeah, I would love to go to something like that. Like those are of course the people that you want. So, so spending a lot of time, or at least I've recently been spending time meeting with people trying to build those relationships so that the audience is there. And then when I do bigger projects, then you know, you, that audience is already starting to be built and then it can sustain increasingly bigger projects on a more long-term basis. Mm. So it sounds like the reason why it's more immediately impactful to focus on a smaller kind of ensemble is it takes a lot of the pressure off as a class. Oh, sure. And that's one thing with the, of course, with the artistic thing. And if you're, you know, if you're, if you want to do your own recitals, of course, then you're learning the repertoire and all of that. And then if you're bringing somebody else in, you know, then you can just focus on that and you can kind of isolate things because then too, I'm still uh, putting, I'm personally putting together a recital. And so the things that I'm learning from this other experience will directly transfer over to my own personal recitals, you know, and even, you know, there are some basic lessons in marketing and, and which I really think we kind of, to a certain extent, overuse that word. We usually mean like mass marketing, you know, but of course with, with Seth, Seth's whole thing is that it's about building those relationships <laughs> and getting away from that idea of the mass and just, and just kind of figuring it out. And I think there's, there's just a lot of experimentation there. And so being able to separate artistic pressure and, and administrative pressure can be a good thing uh, to, to help figure things out, you know, because you just have less on your plate at a single time to focus on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like you've built quite the path for yourself as a facilitator and helping to foster a community for musicians in a way that can help them. It's fantastic. Well, that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> well, looks like you've already met the goal and you're just keeping the ball rolling. <laughs> I've got great respect for what you're doing. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. So in the midst of all this, I'm curious if you are aware or if you have like, maybe it's a list of several things, but what is it that you love most about music? Oh, what do I love most about music? Yeah, that is a tough one, isn't it? That's why I said a list, maybe. <laughs> I... Oh, that's... No, it's, it's a, it is a really great question, and it's something that we don't ask ourselves very often. And it's one thing I've talked, to, I've talked about on my, on my blog or wrote about, and whenever I, I see colleagues kind of dragging it. It's like, so why do you do music? <laughs> you know, why do you play the saxophone? Why are you here? Because it's such a fundamental question that then determines our motivation. It determines, you know, what we're going to do and how much energy we're going to put into it. Because if you're not, if you're not here for any, any real reason, you know, whatever it might be, there's not necessarily a better or worse answer, but it's, you know, we just, we certainly don't spend enough time talking about it. And, but I think for me, for, for me, it's, it's the relationship building that you can take a group of musicians from very different backgrounds. You can bring them together. You can do incredible things. You can, you can create something truly beautiful and then you can share that with an audience. And so there are, there are, there are all these complex relationships within music. You have the relationship between the composers and the musicians. You know, if, they're, if the composer's dead or alive, that affects things pretty dramatically. You know, and then you have you. Uh, I love working with with living composers because then you get get feedback, and in, in, in the music itself ends up becoming uh, much more alive. I think, and the. You have the relationship between the musicians and the music. You have the relationship among the musicians. You have the relationship between the composers and the audience. And you have the relationship between the, the musicians and the audience. And, or the performers, I should say, because really, they're all, they're all musicians, composers and performers alike. 
but you know, I think there's there's something really special about that that nexus of relationships. And and I'm sure there are other fields that deal with that, but I think it's something that's certainly unique in the performing arts and and there's something very special about it in, in music itself. I absolutely agree. <laughs> <laughs> Not much more I can add to that. <laughs> well, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. I feel like we could discuss music and the world and culture for <laughs> hours. <laughs> Is there anything else that you can just kind of think of that you would like for an aspiring musician to hear or know? Sure. I think one thing I would tell anybody who wants to be in music is that you don't have to just be an aspiring musician. You know, once you once you're performing, you really are a musician. So there's no you know, there's nothing lesser about somebody who's younger or who hasn't done as much. You know, just assume, you know, if you if you go out and you want to make money from it, just tell yourself that you're a professional musician. <laughs> I, it's uh, you're fully permitted, or at least I permit it. And, <laughs> you know, and go out and, and, and don't be afraid of things. Go out, do do big things. And, you know, and when you when you fail, you just you pick yourself back up and you go, OK, what did I learn from that? And then that's those are the sorts of people that we we really need in the music field is people who are willing to go out there, put themselves on a limb, not just artistically, but financially and 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 with their egos <laughs> and all of that, you know, where can I make this thing work and can I reach these people in a way that is sustainable? And I think that's how we get a better a better music field. Well, thank you. I wish I had heard that when I was like 13 years old. <laughs> <laughs> um, where is the best place for listeners to find you or your music online? Well, if people are looking to find things about me, they can go to my website, robertinconcert.com. There, they, if they want to shoot me an email, my email address is on there. And yeah, I'm also on Facebook. All right. Well, thank you so much, Robert. It's been such an honor to finally have this conversation and i have so many more things to think about what it means to be a musician and <laughs> make money and this is just fantastic it's exactly what i needed thank you oh well thank you <laughs> please check the show notes for links to find robert's music social media and all that fun stuff one last thing before you go today there are techniques, strategies, and routines that work best for different people. With that in mind, I encourage you to consider this. How can you help musicians become more comfortable with sharing their failures, yourself included? Sharing the moments of failure helps you learn from them, and they can help others, similar to how case studies are popular in the business world.